You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hello, Amy. How are you? Amy Wax. I'm good. I'm good. This is Glenn Lowry. Let me introduce Amy Glenn Lowry, the Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv. I'm a professor at Brown University. Amy Wax is a professor of law at the University of Pennsylvania, a frequent guest here on the Glenn Show in the past. Uh, and is back and uh, with the Glenn Show at bloggingheads.tv, sponsored by the Watson Institute uh, for International and Public Affairs at Brown. Welcome back, Amy. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Okay, now, <laughs> do you know that um, in the comments section after we post the conversation, you and I, there seem to be, I don't know if you look, two strands of of reaction. One of them is, I love Amy Wax, have her back again immediately. She's such an intelligent woman. And the other is, oh my God, you had that woman on your show again? She's completely crazy. And by the way, she's probably a racist. Uh, <laughs> so I regard myself and having you as a guest on the show, first of all, then being able to declare to the public that you're my friend and that I admire you and I admire your courage and the quality of your mind and your independence of thought which doesn't require me to agree with your every word, which wouldn't be true of any two people anyway. But nevertheless, I feel like I'm striking out against cancel culture, Amy, like I'm taking a step in the direction of open discourse. (laughs) Well, I mean, those two threads of comments are really emblematic of, you know, this horrible polarization that we're we're seeing uh, that's just increasing by leaps and bounds with every moment. I mean, I get the same reactions in my day-to-day life. Um, I have, you know, people who are just furious at me or, you know, won't even speak to me. And then I have this bizarre fan club that uh, people who email me and send me letters and send me little tokens of their appreciation a little button I got the other day that says uh, support bourgeois norms. Um, have- <laughs> people, people should know that one of the reasons people should just know that Amy, everybody doesn't know that you wrote a famous op-ed piece in which you extolled the virtues of bourgeois norms and you were pilloried as a racist for having written that piece and tried to be run out of town on the rail. So I see you've got fans out there sending you mugs with a model on them or whatever. That's pretty good. That's pretty yeah, good. Yeah, And then when the <laughs> African-American museum said, here's the essence of whiteness, list of bourgeois norms. I cannot tell you how much mail I got in response to that. Yeah. A lot of different weird things, because it's hard to know how to respond to that, right? But people will come up to me, you know, on the street and in airports before COVID, and I used to uh, actually fly, um, and say, you're Amy Wax, aren't you? So it's yeah. interesting. Uh, people pay attention. Uh, they will quote back to me my New Yorker interview, actual things I said. That's pretty cool, Amy. Okay, okay. So yeah. our time is limited, <laughs> and I want to lay down our parameters uh, we have a list. We're going to talk about Charles Murray's book, Human Diversity, which both of us have read and have thoughts about, and uh, the general issue of uh, how research in this area of, of human uh, differences and the implications uh, is regarded in the academy and taboo in some quarters. We were going to talk about affirmative action and what you regard, I think, but not without reason, and we can discuss it as some of the more subtle and subversive implications of the practice of affirmative action and how it might be connected to some of the fury and uh, anger that we see being expressed on campus. 
Um, uh, and uh, we were going to talk about cancel culture and, and uh, who can speak and who can't uh, these days. So uh, that's good. Let's go. Let's go. Murray, what are, you, what are your thoughts? It'll only take about two hours, that whole agenda. Um, well, I, you know, it was a while ago I read this book, and I have to say, looking back at it, there are a number of things about it that surprised me that maybe weren't expected uh, from the book. Um, first of all, he spends a lot more time and many more pages on gender uh, and gender differences than I would have predicted because I never thought he was all that interested in that. And um, a fair amount on individual differences, what the sources of individual differences are, and relatively little attention to, you know, the really hot button issue, which is group differences or racial differences, even though he has biology of race in his title. Um, he actually shies away from getting very specific about that and even uh, distances himself from the term race. I mean, he at some point he says, you know, there's so much semantic sophistry and controversy around race and whether race is real and all of that, that I'm just going to use this term, ancestry groups. And I mean, I have yeah, my- he, Oh, you don't like that. Okay. Yeah, the, race, me, the term race. I don't care. I mean, I really don't care. Um, but he does say at one point that um, ancestry groups do roughly correspond or yeah. roughly correspond to our kind of conventional common sense racial groups. I so, wasn't so bothered by that. I, I actually uh, yeah. I thought I understood that move. But let me explain to people who may not have seen the book. So this is Charles Murray. So he's taking on. And it is, you know, the intellectual ambition of writing such a book has to be acknowledged. I mean, you know, this is yes. not a minor undertaking. This is a massive. Yeah. And uh, Charles, you know, he's got his uh, Murray detractors and critics uh, for his books in the past. But uh, I have to say that uh, he's pretty credible. I mean, he comes off as a very serious, synthetic, you know, poly, uh, poly interested. I mean, he's of science. He's. <laughs> Biology, yeah. genetics, psychology, you know, whatever. Uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a significant intellectual effort. I mean, I just think that has to be said. This is not a kook. You pick up this heavy tome and, and what he does is he sets out in three areas in which their, uh, human distinction can be drawn with respect to gender, with respect to quote unquote race that he won't say is race and with respect to social class. Right. To argue to argue that there are natural differences among human beings that correlate with these categories or are essentially connected to these categories, which are pertinent to understanding uh, what's going on in society. And he argues that forcefully. He says this notion that these things are social constructs, that they're just inventions of our imagination is false. And then he goes in a relatively encyclopedic fashion, marching through the voluminous literatures. I mean, dozens of different scientific literatures with footnotes that go on for hundreds of pages. So uh, let's give Brother Charles Murray his due. Well, I, I'm, there is no greater fan of Charles Murray than I am. Uh, so I agree with you on everything you've said. But I, I would actually just uh, modify what you said a tiny little bit. As I said before, he, he emphasizes gender. I think there's a reason for that. And I'll get to that in a minute. 
But on race, quote unquote, you know, ancestry, whatever you want to call it, uh, group differences, he does tread very, very lightly, uh, probably wisely. He's very cautious. He doesn't overstate. There, I really searched the whole book for one statement, just plain out that, you know, group race differences in, let's say, cognitive ability the evidence is that they have a genetic basis. He never actually says that. I mean, he never really actually says that, uh, which is probably uh, wise. But in so doing, in being a little less forceful maybe than he could have been, he does neglect some recent studies. I looked up in the index and in the list of citations um, whether these studies that I'm aware of were cited and they weren't. So what am I talking about? He wait a minute, wait a minute. I, excuse me for interrupting now. You will be allowed to proceed. I want to be clear. You're attacking Charles Murray, quote unquote, from the right in terms of racial IQ uh, and, and uh, natural differences in human populations. Did I understand you correctly? A okay, little bit. Pr- proceed. We're going to let mean, Amy Wax you know, attack Charles Murray. This is not Murray a major right. attack. It's just more sort of curiosity. So one of the areas, the hot areas of research, which he does talk about in here, is called genome-wide analysis. Genome-wide analysis is the cutting edge of research on the biological basis of group differences. Um, and what that entails, very simply, is just looking at the whole profile of the genome, right, and this is the so-called polygenic score that we are talking right, about polygenic here. score and and looking at the patterns of different groups this range of patterns very yeah common. yeah yeah uh, and then seeing how they differ in systematic ways and Charles had a, excuse me for interrupting I mean he had a piece in the Wall Street Journal in which he focused on this very specific point and he claimed that the polygenic score kind of analysis, that he associates with people like, is it Turkheimer or somebody like that? Uh, will revolution or, or Plowman, one of, you know, will revolutionize uh, the way in which the social sciences are practiced later in the 21st century. Again, yeah. forgive me for interrupting, but I just want to add that. No, comment. but that, that is right. So this is, this is sort of the cutting edge way that we are going to get at group differences, whatever they are, if they exist, right? And actually, yeah, I'll- I have to tell you that my colleague here at Brown, uh, Brandon Agbunu, he's a uh, uh, evolutionary geneticist, very smart guy, mathematical biology type, uh, says that, uh, uh, and he, he and some of his colleagues have a letter that they sent to the Wall Street Journal saying that Murray vastly overstates uh, the uh, solidity of the polygenic score uh, formulation as a way of representing uh uh, uh, essential differences between racial populations. I just wanted to put that on the record. Right. So it is controversial. Exactly. And, and I don't want to spend too much time on the controversy. No, we shouldn't because it's technical. Just because I think, you know, the, the leading people in the field, this all goes to the politicization of this area, Glenn. The, the leading people in the field, um, they more or less think that, you know, there are these identifiable groups that they do have fairly distinctive profiles, even though they're muzzy at the edges, of course, uh, because, you know, there are distributions and all of that. What you're referring to goes to this whole area of discourse of race isn't real. Now, you know, I can, we can get into that, but let's just assume race is sort of real. 
Okay. But there are people, I'm not even going to name them because I happen to be in touch with some of these people. They're very nervous about the future of their field and they don't want to call attention to themselves. These are people who show up at meetings like the International Society for Intelligence Research. And I've attended one of their international meetings. Okay. Um, these people have really have published findings like this, findings that Murray doesn't refer to. You can correlate the allelic profile, the genome-wine-associated profile, this forget about race, we're just talking about general populations, and most of this stuff has been done on white people. You can correlate those profiles with years of education completed. Now, years of education completed is not IQ. It is not a direct measure of cognitive ability. But it is an easily measurable parameter that is highly correlated with cognitive ability. So what those studies are essentially saying is, yes, we are honing in on a genetic profile, uh, a kind of complex signature that is associated with and we think probably causally related to cognitive ability, okay? There are some studies out of England along these lines. There's one really interesting one that says if you look at people from a Welsh mining village and separate the people who leave the village for the big city and get additional years of education versus the people who are left behind, those two categories have different genetic profiles. You can distinguish them through their okay, Amy. polygenic uh, okay. spore. Yeah, so that's let, the kind of study that he actually doesn't pay much attention to. Well, let me, let me defend Charles Murray here for a minute. He also doesn't talk much about evolutionary psychology. I remember the passage in his book where he uh, explains why, and I think it's because he's on a mission and he wants to keep the field as uncluttered as possible. He doesn't want to get into an argument with people about what is race. He says we can agree on ancestral populations because – we know the human, you know, kind of uh, anthropology, the human uh, population, you know, coming out of East Africa and all that. We can see isolation of these subpopulations and so on. But we don't have to get down to a uh, kind of uh, what he might think counting angels on the head of the pen argument about what is race. That's my understanding of why he wants. And likewise with evolutionary psychology, which is a completely different thing altogether. But he realizes there are big methodological debates within the field about the significance of certain ways of thinking about how it is that selfish genes might uh, interact with each other. And he doesn't want to get into that. So he brackets that. I think he's I think he's kind of trying to bracket that in order to focus on the thing that he's focused on. But the other thing I want to say, Amy, is. Uh, OK, uh, you're talking to Glenn Lowry. I'm a fellow of the Econometric Society. I'm a professor at Ivy League University. I'm black. I'm a social scientist. I know about IQ research. I can't run away from this question. Um, and at the same time, I read in the New York Times recently, and I was appalled to read it, somebody Boy. commenting on the position of race and economics, and they had a throwaway line like, they're even prepared to consider intelligence as an explanation, as a factor explaining wages. You, you, you know what I mean? They were, they were like, line. They were like oh, my line. God, they're prepared to put IQ in the <laughs> equation, you know. And I'm thinking, what is this? Of course I'm going to put cognitive measures on the right-hand side of an explanatory okay. equation determining who gets paid what. Because I think pay relates to human effectiveness, even if not perfectly so. And I think human effectiveness and functioning is related with their capacity to read, 
think, analyze, process, remember, uh, associate, uh, et cetera, generalize, make analogies. Yeah. Come on. I mean, let's, can we live in the real world is, is kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. On the other well, hand, on, on the other that. hand, I just want to say this. I mean, I want to get your reaction. The, the leap, leap between uh, cutting edge uh, biogenetic uh, research that is beginning to uncover a vast mystery about which we will know a great deal more 50 and 100 years from now than we do today, and which will include not only the predetermined genetic endowment of persons, but also the interaction of that endowment with the environment. You know, I'm very impressed by the fact that the genetic uh, processes that left me nearsighted are easily correctable so that I don't lose out in the Darwinian competition for status simply because I was born. There's no doubt that there's a genetic process going on, but there's also no doubt that the playing field can be leveled, this kind of thing. So when you talk to politics and policy, when you start getting into the area, why are the blacks lagging behind? Why are there too many of them in the jails and things like that? Linking that up with genetic stuff, I think, is a leap. It's a leap, and it's not necessary. I, I would want to defend to the death your right or Charles Murray's right to inquire into these matters and to try to help us understand what's going on with, right. with uh, human society. But I would also be cautious about being too quick to elide from the one into the other, the other being politics, policy, and uh, you know, kind of rationalizations for different social arrangements and social outcomes. Sure. What do you think about that? Sure. But, Will, I mean, first of all, there's this curious thing going on right now with all this frenzied wokeness and, you know, everything in the wake of, of, of Black Lives Matter, which is that a trend that was already underway has accelerated to the point of absoluteness, which is just simply you're not allowed to talk about things like, you know, behavioral, forget the genetic part, whether it's yeah. nature nurture you're not even allowed to talk about the empirics of differences between groups in let's say performance or you know even culture or values or anything like that and let me just say and I think Murray discusses that is that you know he's I think convinced that there is a genetic basis for uh, differences individual and perhaps groups in personality in interests in uh, orientation, things like, you know, agreeableness, curiosity. I mean, everything that you can imagine about people's behavior, not just their cognitive ability, right? But I think we have undergone what I would call a kendification of the culture. Here I'm referring to Ibram Kendi and his book, <laughs> How to Be Anti-Racist. And in that book, he says, um, let's just get one thing straight. Uh, there is nothing wrong with black people. Now, what does that tell you? Uh, you know, you can't criticize them. You can't make generalizations. You can't make any sort of invidious comparison. You can't even consider the ways in which one group might empirically differ from another, regardless of the cause or what kind of corrective is down the road. So I think this talk of, you know, the undeniable fact, I'm going to say this, of average IQ differences between whites and blacks, which have been measured for you know, forever and haven't really closed as an empirical matter apart from what's causing them, uh, that has become almost an absolute taboo. Just as we are in this era where all of the powers that be, uh, and not just the renegades, but the establishment is saying, number one, every 
in inequality that you see is due to racism. Okay. That's just an item of faith. That's a axiom of the religion. And we pledge that we are going to slot, you know, hire blacks and put blacks in all sorts of positions of authority, occupations from top to bottom. And we're going to do it now, right? Regardless of any of these measures of merit, any of this process of of sort of preparing oneself for these positions, that's just off the table. Um, and all okay. of this taking place at the same time that there is this uh, little group, this coterie of scientists who are trying to keep their head down uh, and not attract too much notice, um, who are proving uh, with ever greater empirical fortitude that the blank slate hypothesis is false, you know. Okay, so- let me comment. Let me comment, Amy. So about Murray and his uh, chapters on gender, he is at some uh, pains to demonstrate, and I think he does demonstrate the overwhelming uh, accumulation of evidence to the effect. And this is the same argument that Steven Pinker makes in his book, The Blank Slate, that men and women are different in all yeah. kinds of ways, and it has far-reaching implications for things like occupational choice and how people want to spend their time and what they're interested in and so forth and so on. Um, and the extension of that observation to popu- ancestral population groups, so-called races, is a leap. I'm, I'm not sure yes. that the evidence is uh, sufficient in the same extent as Mary exhibits on, on the question of gender. I would be I open to, I'd be open to inquiry into that. That's one thing. No, I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, I think that's why he spends so much time on gender is that he recognizes absolutely correctly that the evidence on the biological basis for gender inclinations or differences, and here we are talking about inclinations, nobody thinks that gender differences are 100% biological by a long stretch, that the evidence there is much, much stronger. It's of much longer provenance um, you know, there's it, there are hormonal differences. There are morphological yeah. differences. So this this point is worth dwelling on for a minute, isn't it? Because I think it has political implications. So the argument, and I'm, I don't know feminism as well as you might know the various waves and the literatures and whatnot. But the argument about gender equity and standing women in society and and whatnot and differences between men and women is a different, qualitatively different kind of argument. It seems to me than the argument about population groups. Uh, and uh, not only is the evidence not as uh, robust in the case of population groups, but the the political meaning, uh, these are leaps, not the political meaning of formulating narratives about inequality in society in terms of causal accounts that give a constituent role to these kinds of natural human differences. The political meaning of such discourse is very, very different in the two cases, uh, well, it seems to me. I, 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 I invite your comment on this. I invite your comment because we're speculating to a certain degree. And yet, when we frame issues, um, I mean, when we frame issues with a particular narrative structure that essentializes unequal outcomes by imputing them to characters intrinsic to the persons in question, we're definitely making a political move, man. I mean, we're making claims about legitimacy of the disparity of access to resources and all of that. And I, I just think given that the science is so, uh, 
to some degree indefinite about causation, not about the existence of differences as such, but about the connection between those and the outcomes that we care about, uh, that it is so open-ended with respect to questions of interaction with the environment and intervention, because uh, that was the point I was making earlier. Given that, I think we ought to really be slow. We ought to, you know, maybe be a little bit less zealous in, in chest-thumping uh, when we invoke these uh, natural differences in the case of talking about so-called racists. Well, first of all, I'll agree with you. As I said, the evidence for gender, I think, is stronger. But, you know, Glenn, uh, if you talk to any academic feminist, I mean, honestly, they are going to absolutely reject the notion that one is more consequential and more controversial than the other. I mean, they are very upset by any suggestion that gender is not completely in 100 percent uh, socially constructed. Now, I think that comes perilously close to flat earthism. I honestly do. Uh, but um, there are people out there. And um, I can give you proof positive that feminists take their blank slateism extremely seriously. I mean, I just read a review in PNAS of um, all the literature on gaps in occupation and and in earnings between men and women by a very distinguished person, the person I know, a sophisticated uh, statistician. Uh, and she, in her discussion section, she very honestly lays out the data, but in her discussion section, she says, um, there will come a day when there is sufficient cultural change that all of these disparities will disappear that is just a matter of changing the culture. Now, Glenn, if you believe that. That's you know, terrifying, actually. It, it, I mean, there's that's, a. Come on, that's, a, that's the uh, camel's nose under the tent on a kind of tyranny, isn't it? I mean, the only way you're going to affect that outcome is if you subvert all of the other natural dynamics that are going on that cause sorting and differentiation and, and, and division uh, based and upon. Choice. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about about what interests you, about what, how you want to spend your time, about what you, what you value and, and what right. your, your orientations and inclinations are. And they do differ between men and women on the whole. And therefore, right. if you try to enforce equal outcomes, you're going to have to frustrate the, the consequences of those natural uh, forces. And yeah. that's, so tyranny. That's, you, a, that's a kind of tyranny. To you, the implications for justice and right and morality may be, you know, less uh, a serious for gender, and, and I mean, I, I can see that point of view entirely, uh, but I can tell you there are some people in some very influential positions, and especially key positions in academia, who simply disagree with you, okay? Now, on, on the race question, or the, the ancestry group question, and all of that sort of thing, um, I agree that the evidence, here's how I would describe it. I would describe the evidence in so, so far as I am aware of it, and I try to keep up with this field, is inconclusive, all right? So it doesn't definitively prove that there are uh, innate differences between so-called race ancestry groups that account for some of these phenomena that we observe, right? Uh, but it doesn't, in my mind, and this is the part that will get you into trouble, okay? I don't think it definitively disproves it by any means. And if I had to make a high stakes bet, you know, like my life depended on it or my children's lives depended on it, okay? Guessing from what I know, 
I would bet that there are some innate factors at work. Now, how much, what the effect size is, what the magnitude is, how significant they are, uh, I wouldn't even start to address. Okay. And because, and because these things are so difficult to know and there's so much uncertainty about them. And because of the political role that racial identification and racial division plays within the larger structure, a prudential argument could be made about not uh, censorship, not censorship. The question here is, you know, how do we talk to each other and what are we trying to accomplish? I mean, for example, for example, I, I give this example in my book. I know you haven't read my book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, 2002, Harvard University Press, but you have something to look forward to. I give the analogy, I say, I'll bet you, I don't know this for a fact, but I'll bet you that if you did an IQ test of people who live in Massachusetts and people who live in Mississippi, you find that the Massachusetts people were smarter. I'll bet you, I'll bet you that if you look at the distribution of federal funds, the net fiscal incidence of the federal government on a state, you'll find that Massachusetts is a net positive and Mississippi is a net negative. I'll bet you, okay? The the, the Massachusetts taxpayer on average is sending money to Mississippi. The Mississippi citizens are on average a few IQ points short of the Massachusetts. I don't know this for a fact, but I bet, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, here's what I do know for a fact. You're never going to hear a speech on the well of the House of Representatives of the U.S. Senate uh, enjoining uh, or impugning or advocating based on that fact. That fact is not admissible as legitimate political discourse. And there's a reason for that, Amy. It's because we're all in this country together, Mississippi, Massachusetts, and all the rest. And the speculation with the big standard error around it, it's just it just doesn't have place in this kind of rhetoric. We're in a tinderbox here. Don't like the match. Well, let me let me just comment on that. I mean, it's not that I completely disagree with you, but I'm going to play a little bit of the devil's advocate, which is, you know. Oh no, not you, not you. Aligns with with my priors, with my with my uh, understandings. I, you know. The question that's sort of out there right now, it's getting a lot of attention on Twitter and on the intellectual dark web and the like is, should, uh, should academia crack down on any sort of investigation or research that seeks to look at the causes, including possible biological causes? of, you know, group differences that have significance for social outcomes, should they or should they not, okay? And there's a lot of serious discussion of this. This is where Eric Turkheimer comes in because he said in a tweet, uh, effectively, and I don't want to, you know, misquote him, but he said something like, um, I just think it's evil or bad to to suggest that there's a whole group of people that are somehow, you know, inferior. Of course, they use this really incendiary charge language, which doesn't help at all in shedding light on these issues. Um, and the implication being, we shouldn't allow those people in academia. We shouldn't allow them to advance. We shouldn't fund their research. And it, it was in a kind of a form of academic censorship, right? So, but the people who answered him, and there was this whole community on the dark web of what I might call these young, smart quants, you know, some very smart people 
many of whom refused to be identified, some of whom... Yeah, they saw what happened to that guy on Google, uh, whatever his name was. Yeah, I mean, Damore and also uh, Noah Carl out in Cambridge. I mean, these people are canceled on a regular basis. There's a guy at Marietta College named Bo Weingart who was canceled because he does this stuff. He's interested in this stuff. But anyway, they are they are very intelligent. And one of the answers they gave, they gave a number of responses to that. Um, the first is a, a more general one, and I, I agree with it, which is, you know, once you set people up to decide, like, what's acceptable research and what's not acceptable research in the human sciences and in, you know, biological anthropology and this whole kind of behavioral realm of research, which is very large and has very long tentacles, really, um, then you're going to create an atmosphere of fear, an atmosphere of, um, of, of worry, a, a, a kind of self-censorship atmosphere in which people are going to shade and, and shape their research to fit the agenda. And I think that that danger is quite real. Uh, it's happening right now. So, you know, that's, that's a concern. But on the substance of it, one of the things they say is we're now in an era where there is this peremptory demand for equality of outcomes, you know, what I call the kendification of social life. Uh, and this dogma, all differences are all inequalities uh, regarding racial groups. They are the results of racism. They are the results of white supremacy, white privilege. You know, white people are the villains. They're the culprits. There's racism everywhere. Uh, and so there's this whole narrative as an explanation for inequality, right? And that, that narrative is very accusatory, Glenn. I mean, you know, the people that are being tarred by this narrative are these white guys, the, the quants, and they uh, don't want to be blamed for something that they think might not be entirely their fault. And they say, in our defensive crouch, we hereby adduce to you that there is, first of all, before we even get to genetics, just evidence of behavioral differences. We can't even talk about the IQ gap. I mean, that's verboten. You referred to that, you know, in economics. We might even allow you to, but as a general matter, it's very bad manners, right? But even beyond that, when we talk about, well, we might have this gap, but we have to throw everything we have at getting rid of it. We have to deform and restructure our entire society until we close that gap. Resources have to be devoted. And they say, but wait a second, what if that gap is a little bit or somewhat not something that we can really erase? We are going to, you know, abandon every other venture for this purpose and frankly, we haven't shown that that's the right thing to do, that it's efficacious, that it makes okay. sense. All right. Let me just add one more point here. So that's. Please, because you've been going on for a while. The, the one more point is there is also a very nuanced conversation going on uh, on Twitter and on the web of, okay, you know, suppose that all groups are not 100% equal. Suppose we're not, as Stephen Pinker would say, you know, interchangeable, perfectly, perfectly interchangeable. Uh, 
what, what about that? What does that imply for liberal democracy? For a Can I reg- bracket that, Amy? Before, I mean, I just want to take one thing at a time. Well, for all men are created equal. What is the meaning of that? What should be the meaning of that in a world in which we are not de facto equal? And we have to have that conversation. Well, this is the bell curve. I mean, this is exactly what Marion Herrnstein lay out, as I recall that book, uh, 1994, uh, uh, A Value Place for Everyone. I think that was the formulation that Charles Oswald came up with. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea is that the political theoretic implications of human diversity are, are not straightforward and they're, they're not necessarily some kind of hierarchical, uh, you know, where the worth of a human being is somehow inscribed on his IQ score or something like that. But but before I got to that, I wanted to, I just wanted to uh, touch on a couple of things, because I think you, you mentioned Ibram Kendi and, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates says something like this, too. There's nothing wrong with black people that ending white supremacy wouldn't fix. And whenever I hear it, it, it makes me sad, um, uh, Amy, because I know the world is full of Amy Waxes, which is to say the world is full of people who are actually aware of what the facts are and are not going to be bluffed or bullied. Right. Uh, that's a bluff. The idea that there's... <laughs> I'm looking at homicide rates that are an order of magnitude higher in certain communities. You know, tell me that that's not pathology. You're going to tell me there's nothing wrong. I may not know exactly what's wrong. I may not know how it has come to be. I may not know how to cure it. It might be right. genetic. It might be environmental. It might be the family. It might be the lead in the water. I don't know what it is. But fucking, I know something is wrong mm-hmm. when uh, babies are getting shot by stray bullets in the head in the backseat of their parents' car. You can't tell me that that's not wrong. Now, my point to you, Amy, is that everybody knows this. You well, know I it. I know it. Everybody does now. Well, I, uh, well okay. I we mean, can talk about that. You understand what I'm saying, though. I'm saying it's a bluff, and it's pathetic. It's a pathetic, weak, beggar's move. It's the move somebody makes who has no cards to play. They throw themselves on the mercy and on the conscience of their putative oppressors. It's deeply, deeply sad. It's sad, but you know, it's working, oddly enough. That's the bizarre part of it. I don't know if it's working or not. November 6th looms ahead, amongst other things. I'm not sure it's working. The New York Times is riding high right now, but as I think anybody can see, they teeter on the brink of illegitimacy. Okay, I don't know what the future will bring, but I do know this. Rioters burning down the Muslim immigrants' bodega on the corner is despicable, and everybody knows it. Everybody with any sense knows it. There are some people who are going to say other things, but I think in Western Pennsylvania in suburban Milwaukee, in upstate Michigan, when they go into the ballot box and pull the lever, I don't think they are going to forget the montage. I know you've seen it, that Tucker Carlson ran uh, one night where he just said one after another, after another, after another vicious, barbaric expression of anarchistic, racist, anti-white, racist sentiment. So the people of this country, in my humble opinion, are not confused about that, even if the intellectuals and the professors like we have to deal with every day are. So so, so that's one thing. Now, the other thing I want to say, and, and this, this dovetails into the affirmative action thing, is, man, we are fighting, and I agree with you. I agree with you about the threat to the integrity of academic research. 
I agree with you about political correctness in the sciences. When you and Heather McDonald's the other person who would say this to me, and I say, oh, no, y'all exaggerating. You all exaggerating. I, I did a mathematics BA and I did a PhD at MIT. They'll never touch these guys. These guys only care about the epsilon, the delta, the rigor, the proof, the evidence, the mathematics. And I'm wrong. Not I'm anymore. Wrong. Not I'm anymore. Wrong. Everything is in play. We have got to defend the institutions. That was going to be my second point. We have got to defend the institutions that allow us to produce knowledge that's useful to the fostering of civilization from the barbaric tendencies of these know-nothings who, rather than acknowledge that some groups perform differently, would scuttle the whole basis of judging human performance. That's what we're talking about. Throw open the jails. I like that. Scuttle the forget, whole... Forget about punishing anybody. Because if you try to punish anybody, there'll be a racial disparity and the system is illegitimate in virtue of the racial disparity. Lower the yeah. standards. Everybody gets an A. Everybody gets a B. Forget about the whole hierarchy of status that we used to have where greatness and genius could be affirmed, where gifted and talented students could be identified and set on a track that allow them to reach their full human potential. Level yeah. everything because the blacks lag behind. That's practically the subtext of this movement. Well, Level you know, everything I, because the blacks lag behind. And I'm it's, 100% it's a behind everything you say, but I honestly, it's, Glenn, it's a lot of wishful thinking here. I'm telling you, I would have agreed with you 100%. The truth will out. Reality, you know, <laughs> triumphs. You, you can't fool Mother Nature, blah, blah, blah. I would agree with you, okay? But the problem here is, and there is, there are these sort of pockets of, I don't know, cognitive dissonance. I mean, for example, I, I tell people, you know, they are expecting the scientists to come up with a COVID cure that's going to bail us out and rescue us. And I'm sorry to have to say it, you know, most of the people we're talking about are white males. Somehow the white males are going to bail us out here. Uh, I mean, <laughs> we need them. We're very nice to them, or we we don't we we don't notice who they are. <laughs> Going back to to what people really are thinking these days, Glenn. I am. Oh, Amy, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for interrupting. I got to say. I got to say this. I just <laughs> had an image in my mind of a spoof. The spoof would be a movie called Hidden Figures Part Two. Hidden the hidden figures would be the anonymous <laughs> white male scientists in the laboratories right. discovering up with a vaccine. whatever the uh, solution was to the problem that was going to save humankind. No one would know their names. They wouldn't be extolled and no movies would be made about them because after all, they were yeah. white men. Exactly. So let's just let's just pretend it didn't happen. Right. But when I look at at the polls, you know, so in some ways, all of this posturing, it is a luxury belief you know, as Rob Henderson says. But when I look at some of the polls that are coming out lately, uh, I, they are very, very alarming. And I am going to lay it, a lot of it at the feet of what is termed, uh, and doubt it used this term, elite overproduction. I mean, we have this whole college-educated class. I put educated in very, very heavy. I saw his column. I thought it was brilliant. I really thought his column was very interesting. Yeah, I, I thought it was it was pretty dead on. There have been some critiques of it. But anyway, elite overproduction of people who are, you know, not really educated. I mean, they really don't know a damn thing. In part, they don't know it because of the way they've been educated, where the past is viewed with, you know, suspicion and disdain and all of that. But... In the wake of George Floyd and everything that's happened, the number of people who really believe that racism is, you know, pervasive, that it is 
everywhere that it accounts for everything has alarmingly increased. A lot of the people who believe this are these kind of upper middle class, you know, white people, especially, and I'm going to say something very uh, anti-female, you know, these pussy hat females uh, who live out in the leafy suburbs and can hold these views, you know, as kind of morally elevated, uh, sanctimonious, um, theoretical. Yeah, but Amy, I, I don't believe the polls that much because I don't think these are people's really considered deeply thought through uh, conclusions. I think there's more fat in fashion and fancy, and they're they're saying what they're expected to say. They're mouthing platitudes. They're not really, you know. And I don't I don't think this is not a democracy. I mean, it's not. You know, there there will be an election to be sure, but there's not going to be an election on a lot of these things. These things are going to be decided by experts. I mean, I, I, I'm much more interested in what the what the elites believe among themselves and, you know, the, what gets published and, and, and who are these uh, people giving out these Pulitzer Prizes and these things and, and uh, what's happening in the newsroom at these major uh, organs and, uh, and and what's going on in the universities where you and I reside, where we know, you know, someone asked me, I was objecting to <laughs> the dear colleague letter that my dear president, uh, Christina Paxson, sent around telling everybody what to think about George Floyd. And I said, come on, please don't tell us what to think. I objected. I objected. And someone asked me, well, do why do I think she said it? And I said, because I think she believes it. Well, I think she actually believes the the 400 years of anti-black racism mantra. So I'm, I want to see a university president who, when confronted by a student protest, demanding that they increase the number of black faculty at Princeton. Where the hell do they think they're going to come from? If they oh, increase the number Glenn, of black faculty don't at Princeton, understand. they're going to come yeah. from Brown. They're going to come from Stanford or Berkeley or Chicago. Where the hell do they think they're going to come from? They actually believe these people are out there. They absolutely do. OK, they do not know the basic fact because the press, the media has really exerted an outsized influence on what these people know and what these people think. I mean, you, if you ask them, they honestly believe that there are, and this is not just, you know, the pointy heads in academia, because what, what happens in academia does not stay in academia anymore. And that was predicted by a number of people, right? It's been exported to the society as a whole through these journalists, these pundits, these, you know, outlets like Vox and Slate and all this crap that people read. And it's really pretty horrible stuff if you can stomach Did it. Did you see what has happened to the New Republic? It, uh, you oh, you and I just... are old enough to remember when the Union Republic used to really be a serious no, And it was a serious place. It was a serious place for 75 years. It was a serious place for much of the 20th century. But Glenn, these different... publications influence people. They influence okay. people's priors. People really think, I have a friend who's a doctor, uh, academic physician, says his chief, who is this, you know, uh, um, hyper-emotional but incredibly well-credentialed woman, honestly believes that there are all of these Black physicians out there. Uh, it's There's no pipeline problem. That's just right-wing propaganda. Uh, we we just need to find them. I mean, this is so counterfactual. It's so dissociated from reality that it's hard to imagine that educated people can believe this. Uh, but they do. They really do. I mean, and here's the thing. 
another contradiction, right? They don't notice the contradictions. Page one of the New York Times, we need H-1B visas because there are all these Silicon Valley and tech companies that can't find employees, can't find qualified people. These are jobs Americans can't or won't do, right? Won't? There's a short. I, I don't know anybody who won't. I don't know anybody who won't go to Silicon Valley for $175,000 a year. I don't know anybody who won't. There are some people who can't because okay. okay. they're not as good as the next fellow. But <laughs> on page 10 of the same newspaper, you will read, it is a, a disgrace and, you know, a, a horrible shame and that Silicon Valley doesn't have more minorities or more yeah. women or more blacks. This is racism. Uh, they're out there. They're all these wonderful people. They're just not hiring them. They're not finding them. And everything but never will you see a mention in any article like this of the actual numbers of how many blacks major in math or major in computer science or, you know, the people who are actually working in Silicon Valley right now and their credentials match the credentials of uh, the minority populations they say are under underutilized. And so nobody ever puts these two articles together. I mean, you know how you could put them together. You could say. Look at if I cut off that H1B1 visa supply for you from South Asia, you're going to be forced to f- go find the diamonds in the rough uh, all around you. You're going to be forced to invest in subsidizing right. uh, elementary school, uh, K, uh, uh, you know, get the kids interested in math and science, find the ones who are really, really good, have the summer camp for them, have a scholarship, you know, get the program at the community college. Go, you know, you'll be forced to do it because there won't be any place else to go. That's that would be the connection. Yeah, that absolutely. Uh, would be you you will have to look to our native population uh to find your workers and of course it's the last damn thing business wants to have to do and you know that leads us to another really much more awkward conversation which is the state of the black family i mean we have this sort of trifecta of dysfunction here which is you know the collapse of the black family the fatherlessness that is now pretty rampant um criminality, which is just a horrible monkey wrench in, in any group trying to get ahead. And I mean, it doesn't have to be the majority of people. It can be some critical contingent of young black males that, you know, just lay waste to neighborhoods, uh, make life miserable for everybody, uh, make it impossible for people to get ahead. And nobody wants to have those conversations. You see, What's the so- trifecta? What's the other one? Uh, and the other one is uh, educational underachievement, you know. So, you know, you put those three together uh, and you have a very troublesome situation. And and really, Glenn, hasn't improved all that much, you know. So that kind of brings us to affirmative action. I mean, the promise of affirmative action. Yeah, but, but hold, hold on, Amy. Let me just respond to what you said before we go on to something else. Um, so uh, you must know some sociologists. I know quite a few of them. Mm-hmm. I don't know a single one who is prepared to say that um, the, the racial family structure difference is a fundamentally significant explanatory factor in accounting for different social outcomes. They are practically unanimous in having a suspicion of that kind of structural argument. Do you agree with that? Because that's certainly been my experience. And, and what do you make of that? We talk about the family. We talk about the black family, so-called fatherlessness, you're out mm-hmm. there with your op-ed about uh, bourgeois values and whatnot. We know you think the two-parent family is a good thing. So do I. 
but and and you, we know that two thirds of black kids, maybe even more, born to a woman without a husband. A lot of people would reject you out of hand. They'd say it's Moynihan esque. They'd say it's blaming the victim. They'd say there are more than one way to raise a kid. They'd say take a village to raise a child, et cetera, et cetera. But very few sociologists uh, would uh, support would support the claim. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, the fact that very few sociologists believe something doesn't hold a lot of water with me because I think sociology is a completely debased field right now. Uh, but I think more seriously, one of the, I, I think one of the problems with the way sociologists approach family structure, and I, I'm very, I'm familiar with this. I'm familiar with the people who say, well, the data doesn't support that it has that significant, uh, an effect. On the other they hand, they say that. Teddy's data, you know, that show that neighborhoods at the neighborhood level, having a neighborhood with a lot of two parent families really does improve outcomes. So that brings me to the following point. I think if you look only at the nuclear family unit itself and you study that in isolation, you won't necessarily. So it's a culture. It's a culture wide effect that you. I would call it ecological. 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 You know, which is families do not, families are important and how they interact are important, but they do not live in isolation. They do not exist in isolation. They exist embedded within a structure of other families. And one of the uh, virtues of two parent families, right, is that they socialize and control males who would otherwise and, and channel them into constructive activities like working and taking care of kids and being good husbands and being good fathers and being good citizens. They domesticate men in ways that prevent them from making a lot of trouble. Okay. So this is an old argument. This is a George Gilder. Remember that book, men and marriage, George Gilder, this is going back 40 years. I think Banfield made this argument with respect to the Italian uh, situation. Didn't he? I don't, I can't quite recall that, but I think so. Uh, but domestication of men, and, and you do at least have to entertain the hypothesis, Ibram Kendi to the contrary notwithstanding, that that a community bereft of uh, stable father role-playing is one in which male adolescent aggression might be uh, more prevalent, and uh, uh, the consequences of that, both in terms of violence and whatnot, participation in crime, uh, altercations with the police and things of this kind, are probably, you know, yes, it's certainly not implausible, but uh, you'd have a hell of a time getting that paper in the American Journal of Sociology. Of course. But, you know, this is sort of common sense stuff. And it's very Moynihan-esque. And it isn't just crime, really. It's, it's, it's shaping men into constructive social roles across many different domains, right? It's, it, it, you know, work and employment. And ambition and the, the, uh, role of supporting your family. And I mean, it just across the board. Um, and this is what you see in upper middle class, mainly white communities and, you know, Asian too. And then there are some blacks in, and involved. You see, uh, a really conventional set of families and a lot of social harmony and, um, social, uh, you know, many social goods being delivered by these families and adhering to this traditional family model. So I think there's a lot of wisdom to a lot of the benefits across the board that sociologists are 
reluctant to really study and look at. I mean, this is a this is a generic and endemic problem in academia. Now, if you don't look at something, you're not going to find it. Now, here's another problem with the count I just gave you, which I call the ecological approach to family structure. Uh, feminists hate it. I mean, feminists go berserk when you talk about uh, marriage and women as domesticating forces. Um, for some reason, they see that as incredibly oppressive and burdensome. I don't see it that way. I see it as a quote unquote empowering to women because and when you talk about women as sexual gatekeepers, which is part and parcel of this whole sequence, right? Which is that women... Uh, I'm not an anthropologist or whatever. I wouldn't know, but it does sound plausible. It does, based <laughs> yeah, on personal so, experience, it has a certain ring of plausibility. <laughs> right. So, so the, the, right. And, and so every, you know, any woman who's sort of down to earth and practical and not completely addled by feminist theory, uh, feminist nonsense, knows that her sexual favors, um, you know, carry weight and that uh, her desires and uh, her behavioral desiderata, right, count for something uh, if a man desires her and wants her. And, and you know, when I was growing up, we did this, these things didn't even have to be said. I mean, we just kind of knew it. Okay, and we didn't see it as degrading in any so way. So here's what I, I hear you. I hear you, and and I'm <laughs> I, I'm 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 very sympathetic to the the line of argument that you're taking. These mechanisms are subtle, and the maintenance of order and the reproduction of social stability and of, of, of the, the quality of living that we that we would hope to foster in the society depend upon these subtle mechanisms and ways in which the icon smashers, the ones who come along with their sex, drug, and rock and roll in the 1960s flatten and relativize everything to find deviancy down and say all bets are off. We can do anything you want to freedom, autonomy. They have no idea of the destruction that they're wreaking as they kick the moorings out from under. This is how I understand your argument. And I, and I think there's a lot of value to it. I have to say though, what are we going to do with these newly awakened, this hydra headed monster of, of, <laughs> of, uh, uh, interconnected, intersectional identity, you know, I mean, the what's behind the fierceness with which some of these feminists would reject it? They're married to a certain idea about society and about the self, about the nature of the good, about our obligations and duties and things of this kind. Uh, and, and it's like, you know, the trans, the, the black trans woman, and I have nothing against her. I, please, please believe me, I don't, okay? She becomes iconic. She becomes the focal point, the fulcrum around which we uh, deliberate all of our, uh, you know, issues. Why is that? And 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 if they're going to kick the moorings out from under, and eschew all of this conventionality, all of this Victorian, you know, uh, bourgeois uh, sensibility, what do they propose to put in its place? Freedom, Glenn. Freedom, and and this outsized belief that people have the ability, the capacity, and the wherewithal, regardless of their background, their endowment, or their intelligence, if I may say so, to direct their own lives without these guardrails and guideposts. Let me say one thing about, uh, I, you know, I 100% agree with you, but I've been thinking about this because I did write a little paper about it that I, that I need to fix up. 
the difference between the core and the marginal, you know, I think one of the things that's driving uh, this impulse to, as you say, just kick the, you know, the supports out from under, you know, implode at all of these restrictions, which are just seen as so stifling, right, uh, is this desire uh, for sort of self-expression, authenticity, freedom and creativity. Uh, everybody wants to be a bohemian, right? Uh, so what's going to happen to bohemianism if we go back to these uh, conventional bourgeois strictures, this kind of quasi-Victorianism that <laughs> uh, prevailed in the 50s, right? Sorry, that's my phone. Uh, we'll ignore it. Uh, here's what I say is going to happen to it. It's going to, it's going to continue. It will never wipe out bohemianism, but it's going to have its proper place on the margins of society, which is where it belongs, right? I think one of the problems that we've seen in the wake of the 60s is that lifestyles which have always existed and the people who have always lived those unconventional lifestyles since time immemorial, right? They decided that they didn't want to be on the margins (laughs) of society. They wanted to be the main event. It's, it's part of this mania for equality. We're so all- another spoof movie comes to my mind. The character is one of these uh, Ginsburg or Kerouac type beats of the 1950s. Okay. And they're going through their avant-garde thing and they're way out on the edge and they're bohemian as you can be. Then along come the 60s. Everybody's tie-dyed. Everybody is getting high. Everybody's screwing everybody else. And these beat hipsters say, what the fuck? We wanted to be avant-garde. And they start wearing suits and ties and they become admin because that's their way of being on the margin of the. <laughs> that didn't happen. That didn't happen. No, I think, yeah, the no. margin became core, right? And even, I, I mean, even homosexuality, right? It's always existed, gayness. Now the problem is that instead of sort of recognizing that people were going to be gay on the margins. And there was a, a, a former time before society cracked down on, on, uh, on gays, let's say in, in Britain, when there was this kind of tradition of grudging tolerance. Okay. He's just a little bit eccentric. Uh, and of course there has to be that, that ethos in society of live and let live to some extent, as long as you don't, get too big for your britches and decide that you're going to launch a campaign against conventional living, against marriage, against, you know, it's a very delicate balance, right? It's very well, delicate. That's, I think that um, that's a good example. My son, Glenn, is a gay man. You might know that. And he would certainly want me to say here, but I would say it on my own account. I mean, it was really pretty stuffy in the closet. It was really pretty awful for people who were stuffy. actually inclined, you know, well, yes. their natural, their natural inclinations and urging. So, the liberty claim on behalf of the gay man getting out of the closet and being normalized in society might be a little bit different than the liberty claim of the drug addict who wants to go or the person just wants oh, to have right. free sex without right. responsibility. Let me just finish this. It challenges us because the moorings underneath the table that's holding everything up have some unintended, you know, or maybe even intended negative consequences, not necessary for holding the table up whatsoever, but nevertheless, I mean, Certainly, you can envision homosexuality without envisioning rampant promiscuity and sexual irresponsibility. You can envision people wanting to live together and love in harmony, in harmony with your very, isn't this why they're running Andrew Sullivan out of New York Magazine? Isn't this why? Because he's a gay man 
who nevertheless yeah. doesn't eschew, uh, you know, the pre- precursors of our civilized uh, a social stability that we... That's uh, why they're running him out. That's why yeah. they're running him out. Uh, but, but, but you see my point. My point is he should be able to be a gay man and still be a Catholic man and still be mm-hmm. a family man and, and, and still be a, a monogamy man and so forth. Well, actually, Doug Murray in England, uh, uh, the intellectual um, who wrote about um, uh, The Madness of Crowds is his recent book. He's, yeah, I know. He's gay as well. He distinguishes being gay and queer. And he uh, said, you know, being queer becomes this kind of, uh, this crusading lifestyle, this activist lifestyle that um, seeks to advance really the interests of this identity group uh, in society in a quite aggressive way, uh, in ways that, you know, are trying to, to derange and rearrange all gender relations until we get rid of of the priority and the honor that we accord to uh, heterosexual relationships, because after all, they are the reproductive unit of society. I have no problem with giving them some place of. They call uh, it heteronormativity, privilege. and it's a bad you have thing. To get rid of all of that, he says. That is different from just being gay. Being gay is you're gay. Uh, that's the way you are. You're probably born that way, um, and you uh, don't have any sort of activist campaign attached to that. You just want to live your life like everybody else and get basic dignity. Uh, And, you know, we can argue about what that means. I mean, that has come to mean things like marriage rights and having children and all of this. Um, So, you know, it's a matter of degree and it goes case by case. So, you know, I think the problem is that when you have a core of venerated values that are seen as essential to the continuation of a civilization. And you recognize that there are people who deviate from that and you're going to tolerate that. There is a ineluctable and unavoidable element of, I won't even call it stigma, but I will call it hierarchy, right? You know, it's stultifying in the closet. We've obviously learned that the closet is a terrible place to be. But a certain uh, degree of deference and sacrifice to the core of values is what is expected. That's a tough one, babe. That's a tough one, Amy. That's really, really a tough one. That's respectability politics. Yes, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. But, but man, politics. the opposition to it. So here's what somebody's going to say. I can hear my son Glenn saying this right now. He's going to say there is a straight line connection between the queer and the gay. He's saying the more or less conventional person, perhaps like himself, who might feel the need to be closeted because of social convention is but one part of a spectrum. And he's saying that what might appear to be acting out in extremity with respect to the in-your-faceness of the queer is the to-be-expected reaction against the oppressive weight of the heteronormative uh, culture. Uh, and, and you can't have one without the other. And, they, and they're saying they, they're going to talk about, uh, you know, the... Uh, the Stonewall Rebellion, and they're going to talk about the HIV epidemic, and they're going to talk about the fact that there's violence against gay men and uh, trans women and, and, and so on. And, and they're going to say, we're in a struggle for our lives. These uh, hierarchy that you so blithely enunciate because it's the you got to break an egg to make an omelet necessary consequence of social order is the tank rolling over 
the fractured skulls, or et cetera, et cetera. You, can, you see how this is going to go? Yes, I do. Speech, I, I know how this goes. <laughs> no, here's the thing. I do not think that hierarchy entails persecution, and that fine line between hierarchy and persecution is very, very hard to maintain, okay? It's, it's very elusive. But here's the other thing. What, what, if, what you're saying to me, in a way, is it is just psychologically untenable on some level to ask people uh, on the outside to live with their outsideness. And I would submit to you that that is not right. I'm going to give you an example. It actually comes from my little essay, what I'm writing about this. Remember George Eliot, you know, the author, George Eliot? <laughs> I've heard of her. It's been a long time, Amy, but I've heard of her. Yeah, well, anyway, <laughs> take my word for it. She um, was a very devout Christian woman, a uh, very serious moralist and intellectual, uh, highly conventional in some ways. And she ended up living with a married man, a man who uh, George Lewis was his name. Uh, he, his wife would not get him a divorce or he would, for some reason, they didn't or couldn't get divorced. And as a result of living with this guy for decades, I'm not kidding. She was uh, ostracized or very limited in uh, the social life that she was allowed within her circle uh, in Victorian England. Uh, and she wrote a number of letters to friends about this in which she said some revealing things. She said, you know, on one level, I, I resent it. I feel it as a lack and as a sacrifice. Uh, it makes me angry. It makes me sad. But on the another level, I understand it and I accept it because marriage is a vital, important, and central pillar of our civilization. I have, whether I like it or not, uh, dishonored it. You know, I have lived a life that has on some level rejected its strictures. Uh, and I understand that um, I am going to be treated this way and that on some level it's appropriate. Now, you know, when I, when I adduce examples like this, uh, I actually had a very interesting discussion with my son about this because he said, nobody who is less uh, honored by society or considered marginal or on the outs, or we didn't get very specific, but gayness came up. He said, nobody who is in that position ultimately is going to accept it uh, indefinitely. They, the, the kind of final common pathway is going to be this kind of late, ungreat moment in Western Civ where we effectively destroy the structures that have made us great because the people who, um, you know, are not favored necessarily by some of them are going to rise up and rebel. Uh, now, you know, I don't, I honestly don't want to have to believe that. I want to believe that if people recognize that these basic norms and mores and the elements of respectability, which is because that's, that's the term, right, are vital, 
that they are justified, that they are essential, that people need them, that people without them will go astray, that man is broken, that man is flawed, that this is what civilization requires, then even the people who are not necessarily, you know, the most honored will accept it. I think that's a profound reflection, Amy. I don't know what to say. I mean, it, it causes me to speculate that perhaps there's some grand theory about cycles of sociocultural evolution in a, in a society where, you know, the, 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 the losers in the status competition, those who can't quite conform for one reason or another to a norm that is functional and that is, uh, that is virtuous at its ultimate well, effect. Rise, the they rise up in rebellion. And and the confidence of the civilization, this is the other side of it. The outsiders have their thing. They don't want to be denigrated. They don't want to seem less than. But what of the insiders? Will they embrace the virtue of their own ways of life? Or will they come to have less and less confidence in them and join the outsiders, in effect, in pulling down the whole the structure. Yeah, you know? which is happening so now, by the way. Which is happening. And this kind of cycles back to the meritocracy and this wholesale assault on the meritocracy that I think is part and parcel of what I call the Kendification of society and (laughs) centered on racial issues. I mean, I have never seen such an assault on, you know, meritocratic methods and concepts and uh, devices. The SATs have to go. Exam schools have to go. Linear thinking is bad. Being articulate is bad. Well, right. All of that stuff, which, which enables us to, you know, uh, lay the goose that, uh, uh, I mean, uh, lay the goose. The golden eggs. That lays the golden eggs to, to create prosperity. And yeah. uh, all of the incidents of, of our wonderful Western sieve, that's what I'll call it, um, all the traits, they are being stomped on, right? Um, and that is a kind of revenge, you know? I mean, this goes back to doubt it's, uh, doubt its essay. Can I just say what I thought was brilliant in that essay? Because I said it was brilliant. You said there's been pushback. What I thought was brilliant was he saying, look, a central problem of our time is what you just said, which is that people are unwilling to affirm the gradations of judgment about performance and achievement that constitute the real foundation of our civilization, because without that, there's nothing. They're unwilling to affirm it. Why? Because it's become so oppressive, the rat race, for those few places at the top, that when presented with a good excuse for not performing in the rat waste, namely the system is fundamentally systemically racist and illegitimate, the white people will grab on, will grab onto that narrative so as to be unburdened by the pressure and the stress of having to fight their way up to pyramids lattice. Let's flatten everything on behalf of our black brothers whom we stand with in solidarity. And, you know, to me, that's a deep insight. I think that's, that's probably correct. We have to explain why when I was with my, let me just say this, when I was up in Jackson, New Hampshire, which is three hours north of Providence, up in the mountains, and there aren't any black people up there. Right. Uh, my wife and I are going out and we see a bunch of white kids marching down the side of the road with Black Lives Matter signs. Oh, I know. Oh. I mean, what was that about? I didn't get that. I mean, but Doubt Hat helps me to understand that a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I've seen the alternative hypothesis I've seen is more like, um, 
you, we, what the elites have done is they've shifted to another marker of their elitism. I mean, the theme here is that elites always try to maintain their elite status by marking themselves out as distinctive. And what they're doing is they're adopting these luxury beliefs in solid <laughs> luxury beliefs that make them morally <laughs> superior. Now, they also happen to make life easier. But see, here, Glenn, is where the failure of the way that we educate people comes to the fore, which is what they don't seem to realize, and they honestly may not believe, right, is how important the gradations, the the demands, uh, and the disciplines of the meritocracy are to all of the benefits that they enjoy every day and simply take for granted. I mean, they honestly think this stuff will just keep showering from the sky, you know, COVID vaccines and whatever else they're counting on that is the fruits of a highly technical society, you know. And then apart from the fact that whites have gone off the deep end on this stuff, which to me is just truly bizarre, I mean, we still have the subsisting problem of, you know, what blacks accept as their fate in a meritocratic society, because, you know, whether we like it or not, uh, and blacks still struggle to advance within a meritocratic society to the very highest levels. So what is supposed to be their attitude to that? I mean, you know, this very much goes to, if you believe that the system is a good one and it delivers benefits for everybody, are you going to accept that? I think that there, you know, this dark web uh, well, community yeah. that is very obsessed with truth telling thinks, well, they, you know, they just have to. I mean, they just have to accept it. You know, it's well, bad faith for them to come busting in and saying, we don't care. We want to be, you know, Silicon executives. We want to be uh, this and that and and we just are. Yeah, let, let me say something here because we ran out of we ran out of time. I think. Yeah, um, I, that's a hard one. I, I had said earlier that the uh, uh, kindification thing is very sad because it's a bluff. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with black people. Well, how can there not be anything wrong with people when you see some of the stuff that seems to be wrong? Uh, not to say that it's every only their fault or their you know whatever. But but. You put your finger on something, right? A meritocratic system is going to sort things out. And when it comes yeah. to who's going to make partner at the law firm, who's going to get the chair in astrophysics at the, uh, right. at the university, who's going to get the residency at the hospital and the surgical specialization, uh, you know, who's going to write code and, uh, be, uh, at the right hand of the venture capitalists when they're trying to calculate the rate of return and all this kind of stuff. Who's going to be uh, the hedge fund billionaire? Yeah, there's going to, you know, and, and, and we can take a look around and all the groups are not shaking out equally in this competition. There are group differences right. in this competition for whatever the reasons might be. Now, it strikes me, and this is why I say it's sad. It's sad because, look at, I mean, get in the arena, slug away as best you can, and take home and whatever it best. is that you come up with. Do your best and, and what? You know, and are you telling me that you don't believe that black folks can prevail if they do their best? Are you telling me that you are resigned to uh, the conclusion that, uh, you know, a, a, a fair competition, now, I'm telling you, getting tenure in economics at a good university is a fair competition. That, you know, 
they, they, you know, they don't care what color you are. They don't, you know, and and half of these people are from another country and they speak in other languages and whatever, whatever. It's a completely open global competition. Uh, Are you, are you just admitting at the outset that we can't do it? And then you're going to disguise that failure because that's failure. That's failure. You're going to disguise it with some uh, ideological narrative about structural impediment. Uh, and then nobody really is believing it anyway. You know, well, so I, I think that's can just, I just say one more thing about this. Let me just say one more thing. Okay. And you will, I'll let you have the last word because I got to go. And then, and then we're, we'll have to end this very interesting session. The IDW people, intellectual dark web, you know, HBD uh, um, hawks, uh, they would say, well, you know, uh, <laughs> given the current numbers, it may be that there will be fewer blacks than proportion are proportional that are Ivy League professors or uh, hedge fund, you know, operators or, you know, as you put it, uh, uh, high end coders or CEOs or we can make the whole list. Uh, they they may be underrepresented at the end of the day compared to some other groups. And then what? Well, I think the answer comes back to chapter 23 of the bell curve, which is, you know, we have to focus on a decent life for average people. And we just haven't focused sufficiently on that. And I think one of the reasons that we haven't goes back to this respectability thing. This all ties together, Glenn. Which okay, is, now how, I said I was going to let you have the last word, but let me just say this. A decent this? life requires respectability. Okay, duly noted. These status issues are a human issue. They affect everybody, white, black, green, or anything else. Everybody wants to be on top. Not everyone can be. How about we just get out of the race business and accommodate the fact of human diversity as a general fact of the human condition and have a value place for everybody, period, end of statement. And I don't have to say anything further about them. I don't have to inquire into their ancestry before I uh, parse what it is I'm going to how, how about we stop? Stop counting by race. Do you remember that book? What was that book? Was that Terry Eastland and uh, Bill Bennett or something? This this is a anti affirmative action book from uh, forty years ago or something like that. Oh. But it's forty probably forty five years ago. But in yeah. any case, you know what I mean. Can we get out of the race business? It wouldn't. We wouldn't have to underscore the racial aspect of these differences as much as we do, uh, and and uh, that might. I don't know if we can get there from here. It doesn't look like it. Who's we, Kimosabi? I mean, if, <laughs> horses, as is often said to me, uh, I think that, you know, we're just, Glenn, I, I, I am countercultural because we are going in exactly the opposite direction as a culture. And I am, I am with you. I am 100% opposed to it. I am appalled by it. I am shocked by it. You know, I was raised to look past I know, you know, nobody's really colorblind, blah, blah, blah. But I, I was really raised that that was a taboo to focus on people's identity obsessively the way we are now. And that, I think, is what is being peddled by our elites. They cannot possibly have our interest as a country in mind uh, by doing that. Uh, and it it will bring us down. I, I am sorry to say that. I'm sorry to have to say that. Maybe we can take some hope out of the fact that uh, you, a Jewish woman, me, a black guy, we got all this distance between us, and yet we can still have an amiable conversation and even agree 60 or 70% of the time. 
that's that's not all bad. That gives me hope. <laughs> Amy <laughs> Wax, University of Pennsylvania Law School. Thanks for coming on the Glenn Show, talking about Charles Murray and IQ and all of that. You're going to get into trouble. You're going to get me into trouble, but it's all good. I'm okay with that. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye.